This is the Magellan Journal, a podcast series here to help you navigate EU opportunities. We remove the noise around current EU issues on different topics such as transport and environment, each time through the perspective of a different expert. This afternoon we talk to Umberto Delgado Rosa, Director for Natural Capital DG Environment at the European Commission and one of the founding fathers of the recently published EU Biodiversity Strategy. Hello, Umberto, and thank you for joining us in this podcast. Um, you are Director of Natural Capital at the Directorate for the Environment at the European Commission. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself and your role? Thank you very much, Andrea. Well, what I can say as an individual, I am linked to environmental policy for quite a while because not only did I re- uh, study biology, which has uh, had already a link with the environment, but I've um, followed environmental policy for quite a bit more than 30 years now, which means I'm getting old. So finally, after an experience I had in the Portuguese government, the Secretary of State for the Environment, I applied to the European Commission, starting in DG Climate Action, where I was responsible for adaptation to climate change and low carbon technology. And finally, I moved to DG Environment, where dealing with nature and biodiversity, which are still my preferred topics within the environment. And here I am, director for natural capital. For me, means basically to be director for nature and biodiversity. Great. So indeed, we can say that you were responsible for the EU biodiversity strategy that the commission presented a couple of weeks ago. Can you briefly explain us what this strategy consists of? Indeed, um, this was one of the deliverables that the kept me and my, and my team and many others uh, busy for quite some months. Um, what it is, it is first one of the deliverables of the European Green Deal, where it was stated that we would come with a biodiversity strategy for 2030 that would make the EU lead as it has led on climate change in the Paris uh, Agreement. So in essence, we knew this biodiversity strategy would need to address the known drivers of biodiversity loss, come up with as quantified as possible ambitious targets and commitments that we would do in the EU, whatever it takes, and also presenting what the EU has in mind for a new global deal for nature that will have to be negotiated under the Convention for Biological Diversity next year. So in a nutshell, it addresses the main drivers of loss um, and it sets the stage for uh, in de facto EU leadership because I believe it's the most ambitious biodiversity strategy the world has yet seen. Okay, can you maybe give us a few examples of the drivers of, of loss and, yes. the, and the plans that uh, the strategy has? Yes, absolutely. These drivers, you know, I follow biodiversity policy for quite a while now. When I was surprised in 2019, when I've seen biodiversity hit the the front pages of the media all over the world. And that came from a report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, IPBES, what it was stated by one side that we would risk losing one million species in the short run if things stand as they are. And also it identified the main drivers of loss, including the direct drivers, and it ranked them. So we know the main driver is land use change and sea use change. 
The second one is overexploitation of biological resources. The third is climate change in itself. The fourth is pollution of several kinds. And the fifth is invasive alien species. In the biodiversity strategy, we have uh, commitments to address all of these drivers. I would highlight for the first one, land use and CO change, the commitments there for how we aim to change the situation in rural and farmland biodiversity, so reducing pesticides, bringing in landscape features, uh, improving agroecology through, agro, uh, through organic farming and reducing the excessive use of fertilizers, to give you an example. Mm -hmm. The same can be found in the marine section for reducing pressures um, uh, from the fishery side, more marine protected areas, reducing the bycatch of protected species. And I would say for each of these drivers I've ranked and others, we do find very concrete commitments that the EU, the Commission proposes that you should do or attain until 2030, in a nutshell. Um, so in a, in a recent interview to some newspapers, you said that the new biodiversity strategy is a sign of political maturity of biodiversity as a policy area. So the Commission has taken measures on biodiversity before. What did you mean by this, that it's the sign of political maturity? Well, let me put it this way. I don't know anyone that doesn't like nature or biodiversity. But for long, this did not really mean it would be a real political priority. I mean, is this nice to have, but we have more important things to tackle with, including climate change within the environmental domain. So this biodiversity strategy, building on the Green Deal and actually on the political guidelines of President Ursula von der Leyen, what it does is, by one side, it raises biodiversity to the same level of political importance as climate change, as the two uh, global environmental problems well underpinned by science with potentially catastrophic consequences and where we know what to do to get some win-wins. Uh, and by another uh, angle, which is maybe the most important, you know, uh, the instruments to address biodiversity loss usually don't lie within biodiversity policy as such. It's more instruments and policies that address land use change, land use change, you change and all the drivers I referred. So now you do find in the strategy quantified commitments for other sectors, including uh, forests, farmlands, marine, etc. And that's the sign of maturity. It now is really meaningful. That's what I meant. Mm -hmm. So it's no doubt that this strategy is also very interesting because it makes synergies between different policy areas. Uh, the farm to fork strategy, the marine strategy, the circular economy action plan, zero pollution ambition, soil strategy, forest strategy, and so on, which of course makes sense. But has it been challenging to bring these different policy areas together and go beyond treating them in silos? Indeed, but you know, in my view, that's the essence of the Green Deal. The Green Deal is not just an environmental program. It is also an economic and social program, as explicitly said. It does address social issues through the, the, the impulse for a, a just transition involving everyone. And it bets in climate, biodiversity, pollution, uh, fighting pollution, the overall environment, as an economic growth strategy. So in essence, I think the Green Deal is inherently anti-silo and bringing together coherently 
many strands of organization of our economy and society towards a, a better future and a better outcome. So it's no surprise that we do need to address a sustainable food system, what happens in the marine realm. We need to address the circular economy, which gives one of the best examples from nature of how things are not just wasted. They get back into the cycles of nature, the zero pollution, renewable energy, everything that you referred. So indeed, this is, yes, it's a sign of political maturity, if you want, of the Green Deal as such, as such as and within it, linking biodiversity with all the rest, as we are actually also linking climate change, for instance, with all the rest, and very specifically these two big areas, climate change and biodiversity, that can be seen as two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. So this current biodiversity strategy is very ambitious. Some of the most known parts of it or plans are the Trans-European Nature Network and the EU Nature Restoration Plan. Speaking of the Trans-European Nature Network, this one leaves a great deal of responsibility to each member state to ensure Europe as a whole will reach 30% protected land and 30% protected sea area. Uh, so in a way, this requires a huge buy-in and this chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So if you leave so much freedom to every member state, how can we be sure they can achieve success? Well, it's the usual practice we have within the EU. We are more than the sum of the parts. And uh, I would put it this way, we are not really, really depending of any weakest link because we are not asking each member state to have 30% of its territory or sea area as protected. To begin with, some member states don't even have sea uh, in, their, in, in their territory. Mm -hmm. So this needs, of course, to be addressed at the biogeographical level, to take taking into account uh, transboundary elements of biodiversity, and also taking into account where are the most biodiverse and carbon-rich habitats and ecosystems that deserve and need protection. So we are indeed relying a lot on the member states. Uh, remember that this is the kind of commitment that the global deal to be obtained next year is expected to deliver, this kind of ambition on protected areas. The EU will speak as a single voice with all member states. So I think if the member states will indeed support this strategy and the global deal to come, then it will be natural that there's a work ahead in order to get to this overall 30% protection within Europe. I think it's feasible and I think we will get there with the member states. Mm -hmm. So another interesting point is that when we talk about biodiversity, we usually think of farms, rural areas and nature in general, and we don't think of cities. Uh, the urban greening plan is a part of the strategy and should be something very appealing to citizens, even more so in the outcome of the current health crisis. What does this plan entail specifically? Well, uh, you touch a point, yes. Um, uh, often we don't link nature with cities, but those that live in cities are usually nature lovers that uh, cherish the green. I think the confinement under covid has made many people, when they were locked in their apartments, to appreciate more the birds singing outside or the access to a green area nearby. And actually, there's quite a lot of nature within cities or just in the surroundings of cities. So I personally think that this impulse to bring in the cities towards their own greening, towards bringing in 
um, protected areas as adequate in rural, in urban context also. Planting trees within, within cities where they deliver multiple benefits is, I think, one of the most promising avenues of the biodiversity strategy. And the more I contact cities and mayors, the more I see they are already active on urban green infrastructure because of the many benefits it gives with a, a sound economical context. So I think it's one of the most promising avenues we have in the biodiversity strategy indeed. Mm -hmm. And you also said before that uh, people like nature, uh, but people also contribute to damaging nature. Do you think there is a difference between people as citizens and people as consumers in the sense that as citizens they support uh, measures to protect biodiversity and they have green views, while as consumers in their day-to-day -day life they are a little bit less careful and less interested? Is it that difficult to make people associate their behavior in food, in their lifestyle, in their mobility to the potential harms to nature and therefore loss of biodiversity? Well, there is a difficulty, which is well known. We often see people declaring, yes, I prefer uh, clean or sustainable products or organic food. And then some studies show that in practice, they just look to the price and off they go. But first, it does not apply to everyone. And second, the increase to have more conscious buyers, consumers, linking their role as citizens to their active role as consumers, this is also coming up more and more. We've seen, for instance, the demand for organic food growing because many Europeans associate healthy food with more natural food that they attribute uh, to, uh, to organic and other approaches. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a plenty of room through awareness of the consequences of the environmental degradation, including climate change and biodiversity, more people actually willing to um, do their choices based on sustainability. This may come with an increased price for sure, but when you have uh, your means of life um, insured, then people have this preference. So it's not uh, just waving a wand and voila, everyone is behaving as it should, but uh, the right prices and the right awareness help a lot towards good behavior and good choices. And I see this as very positive from the use and their demonstrations that actually also cover nature in their panels and slogans to the wider consumers that have a tendency to make better choices as time passes. Mm -hmm. Now, my uh, last question is, in 2007, during the Portuguese presidency, the European Business and Biodiversity Initiative was set up, led by large companies. In the message from Lisbon participants identified as priority the need to integrate biodiversity criteria and business decisions and corporate governance. What happened to this platform? Do you think there has been progress in this matter? Well, you do remember me when this happened. I happened to be in the Portuguese government. And indeed, it was one of the options of the, uh, the Portuguese presidency to give priority to this link business and biodiversity. And I'm proud to have been involved in that. You ask me, was there progress? Yes, indeed, there was progress. But let's say it was, in my view, within a group of pioneers of companies that have understood that is not enough just to take into account your emissions or your waste. You need to have a broader perspective also on the side of the 
uh, impacts and dependencies on, on nature that you can have as a business. What I'm seeing nowadays is a very impressive trend towards taking this more into account with more players. If you look to the World Economic Forum, their global risk report that comes yearly, every year, biodiversity has climbed up the ladder of priority and is now among the top five together with climate change and other environmental concerns. Also, it is the World Economic Forum telling us of the big costs that biodiversity degradation has for the economy. So it's not mm -hmm. the NGO saying it, it's business saying it. And within not only the EU business and biodiversity platform, but several other actors, I see them now extremely committed to come up with their own commitments for nature, with a view to the global uh, deal to be obtained next year, but also on the very promising, working on more measurement of biodiversity so that it can be taken into account in natural capital accounting as another strand orienting business for the best decisions. So I think there was progress, there can be much more, but I think the engine is now really uh, pumping from the side of business and they should be praised for that. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, my final question is maybe a little bit more, more personal and less specific. It's uh, what are for you the main lessons you have learned from this current crisis related to nature and biodiversity? If uh, you are referring, as I believe, to the COVID crisis, yes, it was exactly. very interesting to see just how linked this situation of a pandemics of a viral origin is linked to nature destruction. It's mm -hmm. not only COVID-19, there were other cases from Ebola to SARS, mm. uh, the, the, the avian influenza, that we do know came from virus reservoirs that are in wild animals. We are now, uh, nowadays as humans, destroying their habitat, reducing their populations, getting closure to that wildlife, and in some cases, consuming in undue circumstances that wildlife uh, in, a, in a way that increases the risks of zoonotic diseases, as they are called, diseases that have an origin animals. So what we need to deal with this is what we used to have, which is more natural spaces, more robust wild populations of animals, and the appropriate uh, separation, or if you want, regulated access and use to wildlife uh, so that we reduce these risks. This was actually one of the reasons why the COVID-19 crisis did not delay the biodiversity strategy for more than a couple of months when we did understand it's important to have more nature around us to be more resilient. Mm -hmm. It was directly linked. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Humberto. And I think these were all the questions from my side. And I think you explained us very well why the biodiversity strategy is so important, especially in these times. Thank you once again, and I wish you a nice day. Thank you very much, Andrea. It was my pleasure. If you like this podcast and want to know more about Magellan, check out our website at www.magellan-association.org.